Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Davey Puddick. Davey is an associate professor in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech, as well as a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. Davey, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to get a chance to, to speak with you and learn a bit about what you're up to. Uh, as is typical, I'd love for us to start by having you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and uh, in particular share, um, you know, the source of your, you know, interest in computer vision and AI and kind of what led you uh, to the field. Sure. Um, so I think my interest in this field started in, I, I think, about the third year of undergrad, my junior year, um, where our program had several research projects that students could get involved in. Um, and especially a funny story, I was interested in computer architecture at the time. Um, and I thought I had signed up for a computer architecture project. But then when they were matching students to project, I somehow got assigned to uh, this machine learning project, which at the time we were calling pattern recognition because I was in the okay. AC department and that's what we called it then. Um, but so, yes, what I was working. What is it that you could accidentally, accidentally end up on a, you know, <laughs> those are two choices. Was it, it sounds like a, a potpourri kind of class. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah. So this was, this was meant to be like a free form um, oh, class. Okay. It wasn't in class. It was meant to be research projects, industry projects that students could work on for credit. Um, And so this was through that. Um, And so that's how I started working in this space. I enjoyed it enough to want to go to grad school and pursue this in grad school. Um, And then the transition to computer vision happened about in the first year of uh, when I had started my PhD, where I was working on uh, pattern recognition or machine learning problems for intrusion detection in computer networks. Um, but then I had colleagues around me who were working on uh, images with computer vision and they could sort of visually see the output of the things that they were working on, um, mm-hmm. which to me felt very sort of accessible, intuitive and more appealing. And I think that's where um, the draw came from. And I, I switched over to that. And that's what I've been doing for all these years since. Awesome. And uh, you've been at Georgia Tech for how long? Um, I think about four years, three and a half, four years now. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you're also, uh, as I mentioned, at uh, at Facebook. Are you kind of equally at, at, at both or how do you, how Split do those both play out for you? Yeah. 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 So I, I split my time uh, between Georgia Tech and FAIR. I'm at Georgia Tech in the fall. So I'm physically in Atlanta from about mid-August to mid-December or so, um, where I'm teaching classes and things of that sort. Um, and then I'm on leave from Georgia Tech in the spring. And then and okay. that's when I'm spending time at FAIR in the spring and, and summer. Um, okay. So I, yeah, that's I go back cleaner. That's a much cleaner fit or split than I imagined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I like that it's this clean. I can't, there are colleagues who have like one day a week um, and flying back and forth coast to coast. And that just, that just feels like a lot. So this is a much uh, cleaner and more peaceful uh, split. Yeah. 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 Uh, so tell us a little bit about your your current research interests. How do you uh, focus your your research at Georgia Tech slash fair? Um, so like like we were talking about, my background is in computer vision. In the last uh, several years, five, seven years at this point, I've done a lot of work at the intersection of vision and language. So mm-hmm. things like visual question answering, image captioning, um, and things of that sort. So that's been sort of my my main 
um, research agenda this whole time and continues to be. I still spend a lot of time on it. Um, but in the last couple of years, I've gotten more and more interested in uh, problems at the intersection of AI and creativity. Um, and so it's still very early, very exploratory, but I've been thinking about that quite a bit as well. So I split my time between vision and language things, um, also some embodied AI uh, work of virtual agents in virtual environments and things like that. Um, but like I said, more recently, I've been thinking a lot about AI and creativity. And did the work in AI and language or vision and language uh, lead directly to the AI and creativity or uh, what what kind of spurned that interest? Yeah, I think it's hard to kind of backtrack and figure out exactly what got me interested in this. I think overall, I've generally had an inclination towards AI systems that are interacting with people. And so I think my interest in vision and language also was the language part of it. My background is in vision, but I think what drew me to language was the fact that it's sort of a very natural interface for humans, for people to interact with these systems and ask questions or get the descriptions from the machine and get a sense for what the machine might be seeing and things like that. Um, so I think it is that human AI interaction collaboration aspect that also interests me um, is also one of the reasons why I'm excited about AI and creativity. Tell us a little bit about your your presentation there. Um, sure. So I I guess I start the talk by even talking about why I think AI and creativity is 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 exciting and could be impactful. Um, and so to do that, I first start by what creativity even is, and I think it's sometimes hard to forget how general and how powerful just creativity is. It's it's essentially sort of any new idea that is of value. Um, period, right? It doesn't have to be in the context of art specifically or music specifically or poetry specifically. Um, it's all of this, but it's also just even anything of scientific progress and technological progress. Um, all of that stems from new ideas that are of value in some way. Um, so in that sense, one could even argue, um, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but one could argue that all of progress <laughs> of any kind um, rests in creativity. And so if we can think of, if there are ways in which um, AI can assist us in this creative endeavor, I feel like that's that could be that could be very powerful. Mm. Is that a is that an accepted definition of creativity? Uh, I'm particularly curious about the the value part. That seems you know, for a lot of the things that we think of as creative, that seems to be particularly difficult to nail down. Yeah, yeah. So it it is a well accepted definition. I mean, to the I, I guess well accepted in the sense that that's what Wikipedia says. Uh, Wikipedia <laughs> defines creativity that way as well. But then a lot of uh, researchers, like a lot of computational creativity researchers, who do spend a good amount of time thinking about how we can define creativity, maybe even attempt to evaluate it. Those definitions and those ways of thinking also tend to have these two components of novelty, where you want something new, um, but there are ways of being novel just by being completely random or sort of sort of if it's a language domain it's just gibberish and yes sure it's new but is it really off value in some way um so i think that value component is also often is is often thought about as part of creativity it doesn't say anything about how to define value <laughs> so i think it right. it kind of still offloads that issue of subjectivity it just moves it from creativity into that value piece um, and even novelty, if you think about it, is not that easy to quantify. Even that can be quite subjective. Um, so I think 
it's it's useful to break it down into these components. I found it useful to think about it that way in the various domains where I've thought about it. Um, but it doesn't really take the subjectivity away. It doesn't really make it any easier to mm-hmm. define each of these pieces. Does thinking about it in terms of those pieces directly impact uh, some of the things you've done in the space? I think I think it does. It it so far hasn't um, directly impacted what kind of problem I look at in the AI and creativity space. It also hasn't necessarily impacted the kind of approach that I might use to the problem, but it has very directly impacted how I evaluate the approach um, and the kinds of baselines that I think about when I want to compare the approach. So it's it's useful where if there's some approach that we have in mind, um, and then if we go back and think about where is the novelty coming from, where is the value coming from, then it makes it easier to think about what baseline would capture just the novelty but wouldn't have the value piece and what baseline might capture just the value piece but might not have the novelty. And then those become natural baselines to compare our approach to to see if we are getting a healthier mix of of, uh, novelty and value. Um, So I know that's a little abstract, but hopefully that's that's useful. (laughs) Yeah, when you think about uh, or or when you kind of plan out your your work in this space, are you primarily interested in kind of AI augmented creativity where the AI is helping us to be uh, more creative? You start, you mentioned that earlier, or do you also look at just kind of creative or, or pseudo creative, depending on how rigid you want to define things um, output of AI algorithms, even, even that question, like can AI, you know, be creative in and of itself, you know, we, we, there's like a lot of AI generated art. You, you do some of that stuff yourself. Like, is that, does that fall under, does that qualify as creativity? Um, yeah, so I think that's that's a great question. I think there's a lot of interesting conversations that are happening in the community around exactly this. Like, what does it even mean for machines to be creative? Can machines be creative at all? Um, and there are... Um, sort of fairly strong opinions on both sides of this and everything in the in the middle um and so i think it's it's useful to think about that i don't think that directly impacts the kind of work i do um primarily because like i was saying like whether or not machines can be creative feels like a secondary question in the way i approach it um i'm more interested in knowing whether machines can help humans be more creative um, than they would have been on their own. So I think of it as sort of a team setting where if you had the machine alone that was trying to produce something, if you had a human alone that was that where they were trying to produce something, and instead if both work together, is the final creative artifact more creative? Um, or even if it's not the case, but is the process, is the creative process more engaging and more enjoyable for the human than it would have been if a machine wasn't involved? Um, so that's how I tend to tend to think of it. I do think that there are multiple stages at which a machine could interact with a human in the creative process. It could be a very tight engagement where throughout the creative process, both are sort of working with each other to get there as you might with sort of a a human collaborator, a human team member. Um, But I think it can also be something where sort of the seed of inspiration comes from something the machine did and then the human takes over from there. And if we can show that, what the human produces at the end of it or the process that they go through after being inspired by whatever the machine did um, is somehow better, more creative, more enjoyable, more satisfying than what would have happened if, if this seed of inspiration didn't wasn't there uh, from the machine. 
I would I would still think of that as success, even though the human and the machine are not necessarily closely working with each other. Um, so in that piece of the machine providing a seed for inspiration, the machine could be working fairly autonomously um, where there isn't necessarily human involvement. But I still think of that as AI-assisted creativity for the human. Mm-hmm. And besides from the, the, you know, that particular categorization of whether the two are working together or in series, is is there a like a, a framework for thinking about you know the different directions that people are going in terms of AI and art, or even AI and um, computer assisted creativity, uh, just in terms of um, laying out a landscape for the, the, the different directions of, of research and practice? Hmm. Um, so I don't know if there's a well-established framework for it. And so there's a good chance that I'm missing some frameworks or some ways of thinking about it that other people have. But if I were to think about it now, um, I can think of a couple of different ways of, of uh, organizing it. One is um, where the creative task is a very task-driven one. And so where uh, the human might be trying to do something very specific, where they're trying to design a bridge that will work well for a particular scenario. So they're trying mm-hmm. to get a particular task done. And to do that task, there is a lot of creative thinking that's required. Um, and the machine could help in that in, that in some way. Um, and the other is where a human is more just exploring, where they're like the contrast between sort of drawing versus doodling. In the former, you are very intentionally trying to create something specific, whereas if you're doodling, you're just kind of sketching different things. Um, so that kind of thing where you're just sort of exploring, trying to encounter something that is of creative value to you. Um, and I think those two scenarios require different kinds of tools um, to help you in that. So that's that's one kind of separation that we can think of. Um, another kind of separation could be where the machine tries to mimic humans in the process of trying to be creative. So for example, if you think about trying to get machines to find a new dance, a new choreography that will go well with music, you could train the machine using supervised data where you have data of dancers dancing to um, different forms of music. And so there, the machine is trying to mimic humans to be creative. But as you could instead also approach it as getting the machine to just discover movements that are well synced with music, where through something like reinforcement learning, it's just trying to find a series of of movements that is well aligned with the music, but is not at all influenced by the kinds of dances that already exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And those might have pros and cons and different values based on the kind of application that you're looking at. So these are two ways of um, organizing the work that I can think of, but there are probably others as well. Okay. Okay. So in your talk, you are going to be reviewing uh, a handful of projects that you've worked on kind of across this space. I think the first one is the casual creator or is it causal or casual? It, it's, it's casual creator. Okay. Um, and so that actually goes back to the first point that I was making. So casual creators are, and this was a coin, this was a term coined um, at, in one of the uh, ICCC papers, International Conference on Computational Creativity um, from a few years ago. So it's not, it's not a term that I've come up with, but it refers to tools that are meant to aid humans who are exploring a, cre- a 
sort of are just exploring and are not trying to build something or create something for a particular downstream task. And so those mm-hmm. are called casual creators. Um, okay. And so we've looked at what we could do in that space to give people tools that might make it a little bit easier to find something that interests them. And what are some examples of the the specific things that you've explored there? Um, yeah, so one is where uh, we have this. So I've been, I guess on the side, I've been dabbling a bit in algorithmic art. It's basically creative coding where um, I create these uh, geometric patterns that I think look interesting. Um, and so I set the rules of what these patterns could look like. And there's an element of randomness. So every time you run the code, you're going to see a different pattern. Um, it's going to follow the parameters that I set up. So it's not going to be completely arbitrary. Um, but within those parameters, you're going to see different samples. And in that context, there are some parameters that I have set, but then there are also some parameters that somebody else could set. For example, what color palette should these colors be sampled from? And that you as a user could set that to a variety of different palettes and then see samples from that. Um, so in that case, so in, in that context, you could think of the tool that I've built as being a casual creator. And that's a tool that you as a user could use to just explore different patterns, try different parameters and see if you find something you like. You're not trying to look for something specific. And what we looked at is as you are interacting with this tool, as you're playing with these different parameters, can I can we build a model that can predict what else you might like. So as you are, let's say, picking one of the different color palettes based on your choice of the color palette, can I make a guess for whether you will like lines with more curvature or whether you will prefer straight lines and sort of an angular design? Mm. And if we can predict that, then as you're interacting with these with this tool, I can already narrow down the space of things that you should explore in the future in hopes that you will find something that you like faster than you would have if you were just exhaustively trying all these parameters out. So that's 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 one thing that we've looked at in, in that space. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the, the technical contributions or or the, the particular areas of particular challenge for a work like that? Uh, it sounds like part of it is uh, the, the modeling, which sounds a little bit like a recommendation system. I'm almost envisioning like, you know, sometimes I'll pull up a, an Adobe, you know, art app or something similar and there are all these pallets of tools and I would just love for that thing to guess the thing that I need next as opposed to having me having to, you know, exactly my way through all those tools. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, it is, you can think of it as a smart tool, as a recommendation system. Um, I think the the bigger, so the, the technical approach is fairly straightforward in this where we sort of collected pairwise preferences from people in terms of um, okay. what they like better than something else. And we use a subset of those preferences to see if we can reliably predict the others. Um, I think the bigger question here was whether that signal even exists, that mm. based on your choice of a color palette, is there, would I be able to guess that you might like straight lines over uh, lines with more curvature or not kind of thing? And it's not obvious going in whether that correlation would exist or not. And yeah. the answer to this, I'm sure, depends heavily on the specific domain or even specific algorithmic art form that you're looking at. And so our my main curiosity in doing this was to see whether this correlation exists or not to begin with. And then we have found some signal that at least in the specific algorithmic art domain that um, we were looking at that these correlations do exist. We can um, predict better than chance at least. 
what else you might like based on some of the preferences that you've given us so far in the algorithmic art. Um, the challenge then remains of how do you plug this into the tool and sort of you would have to look at sequential decision making, whereas you're interacting with this in a sequential fashion, we want to be making these predictions right now, everything that we've done is very sort of snapshot at one um, instance in time. Mm-hmm. And so the the pairwise preferences was that data that you had to collect from uh, from scratch, or were you able to you know, find that somewhere? <laughs> yeah, no, we had we had to collect that from scratch because we were doing this in the context of um, this particular algorithmic R tool that I had. Yeah. So we weren't like using preferences on other things that might already exist out there. And so we did this on um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, um, where we showed people pairs of okay. art pieces and and what's nice about these tasks compared to a lot of other things that tend to be on Amazon Mechanical Turk is these are much more interesting tasks people like looking at pieces of art and telling you um, which one they like better and things like that so it's um, it's quite easy to collect a lot of data um, for can you talk a little bit more about how you set up the task did you show them to complete pictures that varied on one particular dimension or did you or or what yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Where we wanted to make sure that the preferences that we are collecting are along specific dimensions. So we tried to mm-hmm. keep everything else the same between these two pieces and only change one variable, like just the color palette or just the thickness of lines and things like that. Yeah. Um, and based on that, we collected preferences so that we can then check for correlations across these. Okay, very cool. And are, are, is that uh, an example of one of of a portfolio of things that you've done in the this kind of genre of uh casual creativity or are there others yeah there is there is one other project that we've looked at in this space um which we've been calling um neurosymbolic in generative art okay um, so it's it's an it's perhaps an interesting connect. there's a lot of debate in ai right now in terms of is sort of neural networks kind of reasoning uh, pattern matching the right kind of approach um, to use for many of these challenges ta- challenging tasks or if we need more symbolic reasoning to do these things mm-hmm. um, and so it's a it's a little bit of a play on that debate in the context of uh, generative art or algorithmic art and so what we did there was um, we look we took these algorithmic art tools like the ones i told you where the pattern being generated is through these very symbolic parameters that have been set, like the color palettes and shapes and things of that sort. So there's been that line of work in uh, generative art, where Mm -hmm. in this setting, you can sample different random samples within those parameters. And then there's been a huge amount of work, um, especially with GANs, with generative adversarial networks, where people have trained neural networks that allow you to model the distribution of data. And then again, you can sample random samples through that. And people have found in some domains that to also have artistic value where some of these generations are very interesting. And you can sort of walk through the latent space and look at interpolations, which make for very interesting visualizations. Um, And so we were curious whether there's something that falls at the intersection of these two generative approaches, the sort of the algorithmic and symbolic versus the, the neural generative approach. And so what we did was something fairly straightforward, again, as more of a pilot study, um, where we generated many different samples from the algorithmic approach. And in theory, we can get as much data as we want because these are just different random samples from the same system. And we trained a neural generative model on it. So we trained again on it. And we were interested in seeing that if again, trained on these symbolically generated images, 
is of value to people, whether people find it interesting to look at, um, to play with, to look at these interpolations and what they think there. Um, and so what we found is that when we compare these neurosymbolic generations, both the final artifact and the process of interacting with these systems to the symbolic counterpart, people prefer the neurosymbolic approaches fairly frequently um, compared to the symbolic one. And so that seemed like um, good validation that there might be something in this direction that is that is worth exploring more. And did your work in the area give you any intuition for why that is? Um, so I think it maybe goes back to the uh, novelty and value uh, distinction, the trade-off that we were talking about earlier. Um, I guess not trade-off, but just decomposition, um, where I think these patterns looked interesting. They look uh, they look good <laughs> to people. They mm -hmm. seem to be high quality because they are coming from this symbolic generation process where somebody has thought through and picked these parameters to make sure these patterns look interesting. Um, but then the neural artifacts that tend to be there in these generations, I think probably look intriguing to people and look different than what they are used mm -hmm. to. And so I think that combination is our, is our hypothesis um, for okay. why they may have found it to be interesting. Yeah, it's hard to know for sure, but that's our hypothesis based on the test that we've run. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, I should have mentioned this earlier, but all of the examples that, you know, we're talking about, we'll be linking to in the show notes, um, including your CBPR presentation, which uh, walks through these as well. Um, so that's the casual creator side. The next uh, set of examples were around kind of this idea of uh, machines inspiring humans. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how you, um, you know, how you created a, a project in that area. How did you set that up? Um, yeah, so one uh, project that we've looked at in that space is on, um, I, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, is on seeing if machines can discover uh, dance, can discover movements that are in sync with music. Mm -hmm. um, the our sort of main motivation there or main goal was there to not uh, train the machine with dances that already exist. We wanted to see what dance sort of emerges if the machine is just trying to produce movement that syncs well with music. Um, what does that look like? Do people find value in that? So that was that was one project uh, where we take in as input uh, a snippet of music. We have a music representation that essentially gives us a sense for which to at, at different points in time, when are the pieces of music similar versus not? Um, and then what we try and do is generate a sequence of movements such that when the music is similar at two points in time, uh, the movements are similar at those points in time. The similarity could be in terms of where the agent is on this virtual stage, if you will, or it could be in terms of what actions it is taking at those points in time. And so we evaluate which one of these similarities is better and, and things like that. Okay. Now for someone listening to this conversation who hasn't seen your presentation, you might be envisioning like, uh, you know, open AI gym simulation of a humanoid object or something like that, or um, but actually the example that you showed is, is uh, quite a bit more simplistic than that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Stick yes. figure. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's it's not even a stick figure if you actually think about it. It's the agent is parametrized in an extremely simple way. Like you said, it can only take one of K different stakes at any point in time. Okay. And at any point in time, it can go either one state, once uh, one state up, one state down, or stay where it is. And it's not allowed to go out of bounds. So it can't go outside of the range. Um, and that's it. That's all it can do. It can just take three actions at any point in time. And it's characterized with just this one ordinal value of states. Um, what is nice about that, though, is that because it's um, it's this general, you can visualize or instantiate this agent in many different ways. I can make mm-hmm. these case states be a sequence of poses that a stick figure can take. And I think that's what you were referring to. Yeah. Um, it can be even simpler where it's just the size of a dot, uh, where it can become bigger or smaller as the music is changing. It can be a ta- dot that's traversing left to right as the music changes. And mm-hmm. it can even be a fairly complex geometric pattern that can be um, set, that can be changed based on one parameter. So sort of these, I don't know if you have, if you saw these videos and I guess the listeners can um, watch it offline. I'm happy to send you pointers to it, but you can have these very leafy um, visualizations where the sort of the sway of that, of that leafy pattern changes based on this one parameter. And so you can have all these leaves sort of moving in sync with the music. Um, and so that is something that I was very excited about, that it's so general that you can have many different visualizations and hopefully some visualizations are more inspiring in terms of what movements make sense than, than others. And I thought that was, that was kind of cool. I did see that uh, the the leafy one, if if I'm thinking of the same one, and it's really interesting to, to understand now that those are generated by the same underlying model because I found the leafy one much more compelling than the stick figure. <laughs> it's like really interesting um, visually, I think. Exactly, exactly. And so there's a lot of, yeah, it's exactly that, that all of these different visualizations, it's the same underlying agent, the same characterization. And I think a lot of interesting work can be done in figuring out what these visualizations should look like to make the same underlying movement um, more or less inspiring, more or less appealing um, for what a person is trying to do at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you go about figuring out what that model should look like as you're starting a, a project like this? Um, so by the model, you mean like what the characterization of the agent should be or? Right, right. I think to be honest, in this case, it was, it was essentially us trying to think about what instantiation captures the essence of what we're trying to get at. So Mm -hmm. our interest in this was not to figure out how we can get a humanoid, um, to stay stable and learn the laws of gravity or anything of that sort, which sort of a lot of the reinforcement learning, open AI gym like things yeah. are meant for. So we were not interested in those things. We were interested in this question of if we produce movements that are just in sync with the music, that's that's all the constraint is. What does that look like? Does that look interesting or not? And so we were trying to figure out what is um, a characterization of the agent that leaves out all the challenges that we're not interested in, um, but maintains the sense of the question that we are interested in exploring. And this instantiation that that I described was um, one that seemed to capture that. And so that's what we went with. But there could be other starting points that are equally reasonable. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, where do you go with the, the research? Is it 
matter even to try to scale up the, you know, the model so that it, you know, has more states or is continuous or something like that? Or is that kind of beyond the point of what you're trying to show here? Yeah, no, I think I think that would be of interest um, in terms of because the kinds of movements that we might be able to get might be more interesting if the agent can take more actions and be mm -hmm. in more states and things of that sort. So there's probably, I'm sure, not probably, I'm sure there's a space of movements that cannot be captured with the kind of instantiation that we have. And so I think that would be of interest. Those could be more inspiring. Um, another thing, though, is even before that, um, the current approach that we've used to find uh, this movement that is synced is actually a fairly straightforward, just greedy search-like approach. Um, there isn't, in that sense, sort of actual learning that's happening. It's more a search process where we are just optimizing for this movement being synced with music. And so what that means is whenever there's a new piece of input music, we're doing the search from scratch. Um, it's fairly fast because it's a greedy approach, but it's still every time you give me a piece of music, we're just doing the search from scratch and then finding a dance that goes with it. Um, I would be very interested in doing this in a more machine learning fashion where we've learned mappings of given and input music, what are the characteristics that the output dance needs to have so that at test time, we can now just given an input piece of music, just directly predict what the movement should look like rather than having to run the search process um, at test time. And so starting with a large database of um, music, of songs, and sort of training this model to be able to figure out what pattern of movement makes sense. Um, and then using that to do the prediction is something that I think would be would be interesting to do. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the the search that you're doing on the music uh, is looking for parts of the music that are similar. Is that is it analogous to like a beat detection kind of approach or something uh, different? Um, it is it it is related to that. Like beats would be one piece of information that affects where the music is repeating, but it's um, it's quite a bit more fine grained than that. That okay. even if the beat. So yeah, so if you look at it, I guess it's hard to describe in words, but you can look at this visualization of a matrix that tells you how similar the music is at different points in time. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of rich structure there um, that is beyond, that it, that includes the beats, but goes quite a bit beyond that. Okay. I'm envisioning something like an autocorrelation where you're kind of shifting the music and trying yeah, to detect. Exactly. Exactly. It very much is an autocorrelation in the in an acoustic feature space. So where we're using these okay. rich acoustic features and we're looking for autocorrelation there. And in it's the same thing that we're looking at in the movement, that we also have a similar autocorrelation like matrix for the movement. And we are trying to say that the autocorrelation matrix of the movement should be similar to the autocorrelation matrix of the music. And that's the reward, if you will, that the agent gets as it decides what actions to take. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, you've also got an example that is uh, illustrating the collaboration that you uh, have spoken about called Sketches or Focused on Sketches. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that one? Sure. Yeah. Um, so there we've, uh, there isn't a machine there yet. This was, we studied this in the context of humans um, okay. with the idea being that if we can, so the, the setup is that if you have, um, you're trying to create sketches and if you have a blank canvas, um, we were trying to look at what collaboration mechanisms lead to sketches that are more interesting and more creative than others. Um, and so the way this collaboration plays out is that you start with a blank canvas and then one person comes in and draws some strokes on it. 
and then somebody else comes and draws more strokes on it and we keep going and we can see how the sketch evolves and what the final sketch looks like. Um, and we were trying to see, like I said, what collaboration mechanisms might make sense in, in that context. Um, and so we found a few um, interesting things here where what we found is that if just one person draws the whole sketch from start to finish, there's a variance in quality depending on the motivation and skill level of that person. Um, it, so that's one, there's there's large variance in quality. And the other is that even when the quality is high, these sketches don't seem um, surprising or novel to people. They kind of, like there might be a sketch of a tree with a bird on it, with the sun in the background and sort of things of that sort that maybe we've seen before. Um, and so people don't find them particularly intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other setup is where you have different people coming and drawing these different strokes. And what we found there is that these sketches look entirely different. They, they qualitatively look very different from what, what happens when one person draws it all out. Um, and so people find them very interesting. They're very intriguing, but they also find them to be a little too chaotic where there's just all sorts of things happening on this canvas and it's harder to sort of make sense of it. Sometimes it can also look like it's poor quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we found is that a collaboration setting where at each stage there is some form of a voting mechanism where let's say I am the person who now has to add strokes to this canvas. Um, If I'm shown five versions of the canvas and I get to pick which one I want to add strokes to, then what we found is the evolution of the canvas through this mechanism leads to pictures that are still quite interesting, still very different from what uh, someone would make if they drew it alone, but are not quite as chaotic and noisy as what happens when there isn't a voting mechanism involved. Um, mm-hmm. Because what happens is the sketches that are a little bit more coherent and a little bit higher quality are the ones that tend to get more votes. And those are the ones that proceed forward. Um, whereas the ones where someone may have kind of scribbled something or added something to the canvas that didn't, uh, that sort of broke its coherence um, tend to not get votes. And then those don't go forward. Um, so the it, it kind of is a good balance again of novelty and value where you get, of um, sort of these interesting compositions because so many different people are contributing to it, but the voting mechanism keeps sort of the value and the quality and the coherence high to eventually give you um, sketches that were rated as more creative than any of these sort of other scenarios. Interesting. So does this, you know, as this plays out, does it produce something that is amazing? Like, is this a mechanism for allowing, you know, a crowd of kind of the unwashed masses you know, with no particular art skill to produce like incredible things that an individual probably couldn't or wouldn't, or is it, you know, less modest than that in its, uh, in the output? Um, so I would say it is less modest than that. <laughs> um, I think the way you put it was, yeah, I think it is, it is less modest than that, but I think it is along those lines. I think it is tap- taking steps in that direction where as a result of this crowd of people who, may have varying levels of skills in terms of making these sketches. Um, we ended up creating something that no individual would have created. It was qualitatively different. Um, whether you like it better or not, again, a lot of these things are subjective. We did find that more people in our studies liked these collaborative sketches better than they liked the ones that individuals have created. Yeah. Um, there's variance along that, but they're certainly qualitatively very different. They're not, they're not the same thing. So we are getting artifacts that are different as a consequence of this collaboration. Yeah, the setting sounds really interesting. And I've got to imagine that there have been lots of attempts at collaborative art of various forms. Um, 
and adding in, you know, some kind of voting mechanism or, or something like that, or, you know, uh, a, a vetting mechanism of each individual's contribution to this thing or the, the prior round of contributions to this thing sounds like an interesting way to help the, the end result evolve more quickly into something that is appealing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it touches on much larger questions of what collaboration should look like when mm -hmm. people are engaging in a creative activity. I mean, we've obviously studied this in a very narrow domain in a very specific setting, but I think the underlying question is is quite important in sort of a larger context as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you've got uh, the last category of um, projects that you've been exploring focused on visual journaling. What's that one about? Yeah, so that one is is a fun project where um, our, our, our thought was that if people could see um, an abstract visualization of their sort of daily journal entry, um, that might be a way to keep people more engaged, that might increase the probability that they will journal on a regular basis. Um, maybe they could also sort of share this entry in a visual way with sort of family and friends that they're close to or things of that sort. And so we're curious to see what we can do there and if we can create something that is um, that people do find interesting. And so what we do is we take, um, we asked people with their with their consent um, to write up uh, a, a short journal entry of what the day, of what their day looked like. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously they could decide what they wanted to share in that journal entry or not. From that, we run some sort of natural language processing techniques to extract what three salient topics were that they were talking about. So we had a handful of categories, I think maybe about um, a dozen or so things like work, family, friends, um, food, sleep, um, those kinds of things that we can automatically extract, figure out which one of these topics they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And we automatically extract what the associated emotion seems to be. So I think we had about 18 different emotions, um, like happy, sad, frustrated, things of that sort um, that we can associate with these topics. Um, and so with these topics and associated emotions, we then create this abstract visualization where there's a certain shape um, that is associated with the topic. Um, and there are certain colors that we've associated with these emotions. Um, and we have a variety of visualizations that we produce um, using these shapes and colors. Um, and again, we run some evaluation to see whether people like the fact that the topic is uh, described through a shape, whether they like the fact that the emotion is shown through color. Um, do they like having visualizations? Do they think they would journal more regularly if their journaling app had this associated visualization and things like that? And we mm -hmm. saw a lot of, um, in general, positive responses to these things. Cool. Um, do you have kind of a, a an overarching message for your you know workshop audience at the the, the workshop? Um, I don't know. I think the overarching message would just be that I think this intersection of AI and creativity can be um, very powerful. I think it can be very impactful and it can be a lot of fun to work on. <laughs> and so um, I think there's a lot of space for creative ideas, um, no pun intended, I guess, um, in terms of what kinds of things we can look at here, what human AI collaboration could look like and things of that sort. So I would just sort of encourage people to think about this more and see if they have ideas in this space and, and engage if they seem, if they feel like they're interested. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Davey, thanks so much for taking the time to share what you're up to. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on today's show, 
visit twomolei.com slash shows. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Thank you.